Keith, good job. You got me. You got me up here about five minutes early, but I'll think of something, and if I don't, then you can come and clog for two or three minutes, so that'll be all right. Well, for the past several weeks, we have been studying through First Peter, and today we have come to conclude that letter. Now, the letter was written by Simon Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was writing to Christians who were suffering because of their commitment to Christ. And the purpose of the letter was to encourage them to stand firm in the faith, even though they were suffering. So we are going to pick up where we left off last time, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 5, and concluding this book. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. Now, as we come to conclude this letter, Peter begins by speaking about Christian adornment there in verse number 5. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our adornment as believers is not found in a fashion magazine, but instead it is found in the Word of God. Now, what does Simon Peter say to us? He says that the younger is to be subject to the elder. Well, who are the elders? Well, certainly that could be a reference to those who are older, in fact, I was thinking about that last night, and I thought, I am so glad to belong to a church that has a wide spectrum of people. We're not all the same. We are very different. And so today we've had the opportunity to dedicate these families who have new babies. We have seen our children as they have come to sing, and we have also celebrated the 63rd anniversary of a husband and wife. 
I am so grateful that I belong to a church, that I am part of a church that has people who are older and has experiences perhaps you have not had, or maybe I have not had, and yet I am able to gain from the experiences they have. So it could be a reference to those who are older. Don't we teach our children to respect those who are older? They say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. So it could be a reference to those who are older. But then I look in verse number one of that chapter. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders. And we said there that that is a reference to pastors. And so in all likelihood, the elder that is spoken of here is an older person who has attained a position of responsibility. So he says, now, you who are younger, you are to be subject to the elders. And then he says, clothe yourselves. Interesting word. Albert Barnes wrote, the word here rendered be clothed occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It is derived from a strip, string, or loop to fasten a garment. And then the word refers to a garment that was fastened with strings. So when he tells us that we are to clothe ourselves, the word that he uses there was a reference to sleeves that were put over a robe and then tied at the back of the neck. It was also used to refer to a servant's apron. For instance, the Bible says in John 13, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. It would be a reference then to a servant's apron. It also meant a robe of honor. Barclay wrote, it is also used for putting on a long, stole-like garment, which was the sign of honor and preeminence. So, when Jesus put on the towel of a servant and served, that became a robe of honor. So what is he saying to us? I think he is saying that when you and I put on the towel of a servant and we serve, then that becomes a robe of honor. So clothe yourselves in the towel of service that becomes a robe of honor. He tells us then that God wants to clothe us with humility. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud. I was thinking about that. God really does oppose pride. I believe that to have been the sin of Satan when he fell. And so God really opposes the sin of pride. And as I thought about that, you know, that is nowhere better demonstrated than in our salvation. In fact, Barnes wrote in the plan of salvation, he opposes our pride. Not a feature of that plan is fitted to foster pride, but all is adapted to make us humble. Now, think about the way we become a child of God. It totally takes away pride. For instance, there is the necessity of salvation. All of us need to be saved. Why? Because all of us are sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, I know that you can clean up and come to church on Sunday and look spiritual, but the fact is our hearts are sinful. So we need a Savior. 
So the necessity of salvation is that we need to be saved. But then when God selected our Savior, He selected someone you and I would not have selected. When God chose our Savior, He chose a Savior who would not have been chosen by man. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 2, describing our Lord, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. So when the Bible speaks about our Savior, the Bible says there is nothing that would really attract us to Him. When we think about Christ our Lord, there is nothing about Him that would say to us, this is the Messiah. He has no form nor comeliness. And as a result of that, man has always rejected him because he is not what we wanted him to be. And the Scripture says in John 1.11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. So when I think about our salvation, the way that God has divine, designed for us to be saved, He has removed pride. There is the necessity of salvation. We need to be saved, and then He selected a Savior that we would not have selected. And then we have to become dependent on Him. Now, we, we want to be independent, thinking that, we can earn our salvation. Boy, that's a temptation, isn't it? It's a struggle. Thinking that we can somehow earn our salvation. For instance, if I, if I go to church every Sunday, surely that will get me into heaven. Or if I'm more good than I am bad, I'm sure that will get me into heaven. Or if I am baptized... Well, then that's going to qualify me for heaven. But see, we have all of these ideas that if I do this or I don't do that, that makes me good enough. And yet the Bible says that it does not make us good enough that we become dependent upon the Lord for salvation. And so the scripture says in John chapter 14, verse number 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way of salvation according to Scripture, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that is not acceptable in our politically correct world today, and I hear more and more people, it seems, and oftentimes they are people of authority, and sometimes they are religious people, who tell us that all religions are equal, that they're all taking us to the same place, and so forth. My friend, let me be very candid with you according to Scripture. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It is only Jesus who died for us. It is only Jesus who provided salvation for us. He is the exclusive way of salvation. So when I think about our salvation and the way that God has put it together, the way that God has designed it, it removes our pride because there is the need of salvation. We need to be saved because we are sinners. God selected someone that we would not have selected and the Bible says that when we put our faith in Him, we receive salvation. So God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to my pride. He's opposed to your pride. And then it says, but He gives grace to the humble. You see, we need His grace, and He gives it to those, the Bible says, to those who humble themselves. Albert Barnes wrote, the arrangements of salvation are adapted only to an humble heart. 
So when I look at Christian adornment, as he speaks here, he says to us, first of all, that the younger are to submit to the elders, and it says that we receive the grace of God by which we are saved. Now, he goes on from there in our text and talks about Christian character. Let me, let me ask you a question. When, when you think of a Christian, what do you think of that characterizes a Christian? Now, in my mind, I'm thinking of someone who is a Christian. What characterizes a Christian? Well, you know, we may say, uh, well, someone who is in church all the time, that's a Christian. Or someone who is comfortable with God talk. You know, there, there are some people who just, I mean, they just talk godly. I know some people, whenever you see them, how are you doing? Oh, I'm praising the Lord today. And I, well, that's wonderful. But, yeah, I mean, we sometimes say, well, when I was growing up, what characterized a Christian? Was someone who didn't drink or dance. Now, I don't know what you Presbyterians did with that or the Methodists. But, you know, we have all of these things about this is what characterizes a Christian. If you do this or don't do that, then that makes you a Christian. Well, then I started looking at this passage of Scripture. What does Peter say that characterizes a Christian? He says a Christian is characterized by humility. Look at verse number 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves. Folks, listen. Humility is a decision, I believe. I believe you, you decide if you're going to be humble. Humble yourselves. It is a decision that you make. If you are humble, it is because you have decided to be humble. Harper's commentary said the true Christian attitude is not negative self-abandonment or resignation, but involves as the expression of oneself humbling the positive and trusting of oneself and one's trouble to God. Now, here's what he says, that as we humble ourselves to God, we can be assured that God will exalt us. If we humble ourselves, that's our, our responsibility. And the Bible says that if I humble myself, then it is God who exalts me. You remember the story in the New Testament? about the publican and the Pharisee who went into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, who was the religious person, he was praying and he says, God, I'm thankful that I'm a man who attends church every Sunday and, and I go to Sunday school and occasionally I sing in the choir. And, and, and I'm just paraphrasing a little bit. He says, I tithe and I do all of these things. And then he looked over to the publican who was considered to be unworthy of salvation. He looked over and saw him, and he says, And God, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. And the Bible says the publican prayed, and he would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You remember what Jesus said? That man went home justified. Not the Pharisee, not the religious person, but that man who humbled himself went home justified. Barnes wrote, He may well afford to be humble here, who is to be exalted to a throne in heaven. And the Bible says then, If I am willing to humble myself, then God exalts me at the proper time. Now, the proper time can be in the here and now, can be in the present, and perhaps God is going to exalt you now because He has a purpose for that, but certainly it is going to be in eternity. 
So what is it that characterizes a Christian, according to Peter? Humility. Humility. Folks, if you are a child of God, that that should characterize your life is that you are a humble person. And then he says serenity. Look at verse number 7. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. The godly person is someone who is humble and has a serenity about his or her life because the Bible says we place our anxiety on him. Well, now that's, that's, that's good preaching and good teaching. But I thought, my goodness, I know a lot of Christians today who are nervous wrecks. There's not much serenity. We're worried to death. But that's what Peter says. He says that we put our anxiety over on Him, and that gives us serenity. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Are you, are you worried about clothing? He said, Don't worry about that. We put that on Jesus. And then he says in verse 31, Do not be anxious then saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Are you worried about if you're going to have enough food? Are you worried about those kinds of things? He said, don't worry about that. Trust the Lord with it. And then in verse 34, he says, therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. Are you worried about tomorrow? Are you worried about Tuesday? You don't have to worry about that. The Bible says that we, we take our anxiety, those things we worry about, and we put them on Jesus, which gives us serenity. Now, why does it give us serenity? Because we understand, he says, that he cares for us. God cares for you. You know how much? Do you know how much God cares about you? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son... But delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's how much God cares for you. If he cares for you so much that he gave his only son for your salvation, then can you not count on him to meet the other needs of your life? That's how much God cares about you. So how do we characterize a Christian? He says that he is humility. Serenity, He says, now he is alert to an enemy in verse number 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Now, the believer is to be, is to be aware, to be alert that we do have an enemy. And I would say three things about that. First of all, you need to respect him as your enemy. I remember when I worked in television, there was an engineer that I worked with, and he said, you need to have respect for electricity because if you become careless around it, it becomes dangerous. Well, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, if you become careless around Satan, it becomes dangerous. He is our enemy who wants to destroy us, 
And if we become careless concerning Satan, then he will destroy us. I can give you a couple of examples of that. One is Elijah. Elijah was upon Mount Carmel. He prayed tremendous display of the power of God. You know the story as to how the fire fell and consumed the sacrifice. But then Jezebel threatened his life. What did he do? He became careless. He began to focus on her rather than on God who had just demonstrated his power. So we next see Elijah under the juniper tree praying that he might die. Another example, David. David was on the rooftop when he looked down and saw Bathsheba. At that time, he should have turned around and gone back into the palace, but he didn't. He stood out there and kept looking. Because he was careless, he fell into adultery. Respect him. We have an enemy who desires to destroy us and then recognize him. I think sometimes that we make Satan a frivolous issue because we see Satan everywhere. I mean, if I have a flat tire, boy, the old devil's after me today. Or if you take a test and don't do so well on it, you know, boy, the devil's been after me today. Or if you burn the biscuits because we've stayed too long in church, you know, I mean, the devil's been attacking me. Well, that's not what you find in the Bible. That, 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 that's, I, I think sometimes that becomes a little frivolous. And so we lose the significance of Satan. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion. That he is stalking you. He is stalking his prey. We understand that Satan is stalking us. The Bible says that he is a deceiver. He deceived Eve. In 1 Timothy 2.14, the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Isn't it amazing that Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment? They had perfect communication with God. They had everything. And yet Satan was able to convince her that God was withholding something that was good. The Bible says that he deceived her. And the scripture says that he deceives the entire world. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. Folks, the Bible says that Satan is a deceiver. Be careful what you believe. That's the reason it is so important that we measure what we believe by what the Word of God says, because he is a deceiver. And the Scripture says that he is an imitator. Paul wrote, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan has always wanted to be God. That was his rebellion. He wanted to exalt himself above the throne of the Most High. He's always wanted to be God. So he imitates God. And so the scripture says then that we are to resist him. We respect him as our enemy. We recognize him that we might resist him in verse number 9. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The word resist means to stand firm against. To stand firm against. I'm fearful sometimes that we come to the edge of something and we turn around to Satan and say, go ahead and push me. That's not standing firm against. We are to stand firm against our enemy. And then he says that the Christian, as he goes on, is hopeful. Look at verse number 10. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Folks, let me, let me tell you something. The Christian is hopeful, but be careful where you place your hope. Our hope is not in the government. 
And we probably need to be reminded of that, that our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in whoever is elected as our president or is not elected as our president. Our hope is not in the government as a believer. Our hope is not in education because we can educate the mind and still have a sinful heart, an evil heart. So our hope is not in education. Our hope is not in religion. When Pope Pius V was dying, he said, When I was in low condition, I had some hope of salvation. When I was advanced to be a cardinal, I greatly doubted it. But since I came to the Popedom, I have no hope at all. Folks, our hope is not in the government. It is not in education. It is not in religion. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. That's it. Our hope is in Christ. And then look at what he says in verse number 10 again. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, this is what he's going to do, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The word perfect that is used there, and this is what God is going to do to you, is your hope in him. This is what God will do. The word perfect, Vine says, means to render fit, complete. It was a word that was used in reference to a net that had a hole in it that needed to be mended. And so the net now has a hole in it, and it's not fit for its task, and so it has to be mended. The Bible says in Mark 1.19, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was also in the boat mending the net. Now, here's what he's saying. The word that he uses there refers to a net that has a hole in it, and it needs to be mended. He says that through suffering, God makes us fit. Through suffering, God makes us complete. I don't like suffering, do you? But God uses it in our life to make us complete and fit for the task to which he called us. The word confirm, Vine says, means to fix, to make fast, to set. Barclay said it means to make as solid as granite. You see, as we go through times of suffering, he uses that to make us solid. To make us like granite, to stand firm. One of my favorite historic people in Christianity is Martin Luther, and I, I find him to be a fascinating subject. But when he was summoned to the Diet of Worms because of the writings that he had done, he stood before the tribunal who had the authority to take his life. He was asked, do you affirm or deny these works or yours? He said, let me think about it. Because he knew that if he gave the wrong answer, that he was in serious trouble. He thought about it and prayed about it during the night. The next day, he came again and the works were on the table. He stood there and they asked the same question. Do you affirm or deny these works? To which he replied, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. God help me, here I stand. Amen. That's solid as granite. It's when it's tough. It's when everyone else is going in a different direction that you stand there because of suffering being used in your life. Solid is granite. That's what God does in your life through suffering confirmed. Strengthen, which means to fill with strength. God uses suffering to fill us with strength. Barclay wrote, The wind will extinguish a weak flame, but it will fan a strong flame into a greater blaze. So it is with faith. And then he said, And establish which means to lay a foundation. You know that suffering brings us to the foundation of our faith? It's whenever the times are tough that we find what our 
faith is made of. I had a friend some years ago. He was a pastor, and his wife and daughter and son had gone to a movie. They were coming home, and there was a man who was drunk who ran into them, killed his daughter. His wife was in the hospital for weeks. Barry said, you know, when I was dealing with that and then I went back to preaching, he said, you know what I discovered? And I said, well, what was it? He said, I discovered that what I had been saying was true, that it was solid. You know, he led that guy to faith in Jesus. He went to the jail and led him to faith in Jesus. That's what it means to strengthen. Now, and I've got to hurry here. You didn't give me enough time, Keith. I've got to... Because he closes with this Christian benediction in verse number 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he closes with this benediction through Silvanus. You see, Peter was the author, but Silvanus was the scribe. He actually wrote the letter. In verse number 13, he says, she who is in Babylon. Now, who is she? Well, most people believe that it was the church of Babylon. In fact, Moffat's translation says, your sister church in Babylon. So most people think that it was the church. It could have been Peter's wife. I'm just, you know, playing with your mind a little bit. It could be Peter's wife. Because Peter oftentimes took his wife with him on preaching journeys. It says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? So it could be the church. It could be his wife. Well, what about Babylon? Which one? There are several in the Bible. Which Babylon was it? Because the letter was written from Babylon, sent from Babylon. Which Babylon? There's the Babylon in Egypt around Cairo, but Peter's name is never associated with that. There's the Babylon in the east where the Jews were taken captive, that is in modern-day Iraq. And Calvin and Erasmus believe this to be the Babylon of reference, but Peter's name is never connected to that. The Jews and the Christians often referred to Rome as Babylon. And Peter, by tradition, was connected to Rome. So it's my opinion that it probably was Rome. And then he says in verse number 13, And so does my son Mark. Well, now, who is this Mark? Well, if the she were his wife, then Mark could be his actual son. However, to be candid with you, it is my belief that it was probably John Mark who was the author of the gospel. Now, verse number 14, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Barclay wrote, the kiss of love was for centuries an integral and precious part of Christian fellowship and worship. The, the kiss referred to here was a greeting of welcome. When someone was baptized, for instance, after the baptism, then they received a kiss. Barclay wrote, at baptism, the person baptized was kissed first by the baptizer, and then the whole congregation as a sign of his welcome into the household and family of Christ. When there was a newly ordained bishop, he was kissed as a welcome, a greeting into the ministry. So, in ancient times, or in New Testament times, the kiss was a greeting. It was a part of worship. And the worshipers greeted each other with a kiss. When someone died, they would kiss that person before that person was buried. But basically... It is a reference to peace in verse number 14b. Peace be to you all. 
who are in Christ. Cyril, Cyril of Jerusalem wrote this kiss. It was the sign our souls are mingled together and have banished all remembrance of wrong. I like that. The kiss of love was actually a sign of peace. It meant that our souls are mingled together and there is no remembrance of wrong that you might have done to me or I to you, that we are right with each other. That's what the kiss of peace was. So let me conclude, because Peter concludes with these admonitions, be humble towards man, because God opposes the proud. Be watchful towards Satan, because he is your enemy. And be hopeful towards God, who will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what God will do in your life. Father, I come to you to lift up these knowing that probably some are going through some trials and tribulations and struggles. And I believe, Lord, that according to your word, you want to use those things in their lives to make them more like Jesus. Father, it's our prayer today for those who have never come to know Christ that they might. Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we will stand, the choir will sing. This is an invitation extended for you. And if you're not a believer, you've never trusted Christ, or you've never made it public, do so today. Our staff will be here. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. Stand with me, please, as they sing, You Come, I'll greet you as you do.